Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 44th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jake Keebler. Jake is the president of Blue Stem Financial Advisors, an independent RA based in Champaign, Illinois, that provides a, a combination of financial planning, investment management, and tax preparation with four staff members for nearly 100 clients using a comprehensive annual retainer model. What's really unique about Jake's business, though, is that he's actually the next generation successor of Blue Stem, having spent the past five years buying out the founding owner, Karen Folk, while nearly doubling the size of the practice along the way. Oh, and he just turned 30, which means he actually started this internal succession plan as a buyer when he was just 25. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Bluestem built a niche focus on serving college professors and administrators, as they are based in the hometown of the main University of Illinois campus, why they chose to include tax preparation as a part of their annual service offering, the structure of Bluestem's annual retainer fee model and how it changes from upfront to ongoing, and how their retainer model structure is allowing them to grow the business, serving a substantial segment of young professionals in Champaign in addition to retirees, and the business management spreadsheet that Jake uses to monitor and track the key metrics of his advisory firm along the way. From there, we also talk about the details of the actual succession plan that Jake executed with the founder, how they eventually came to terms on setting a price on a hard-to-value solo advisory practice for an internal succession plan, the way the purchase was structured and funded, and how it was balanced to share the upside for both Jake as the buyer and Karen as the seller for any growth that happened after the terms of the deal were set. And be certain to listen to the end, where Jake shares his own advice to other young advisors looking to buy into an advisory firm and be that succession plan about how to push the conversation forward when the founder just doesn't seem to want to sell, and how to know when it's time to cut bait and leave and find another opportunity instead. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jake Keebler. Welcome, Jake Keebler, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm very excited to be with you today. I'm psyched to have you on the episode. And, and it it's funny, this was truly just sheer coincidence of, of timing and how people's schedules lined up. But our last episode was with Marty Kurtz with the Planning Center in Moline, Illinois, who has lived succession planning as as the successor, as the the founder that has been selling shares of the business and transitioning ownership and transitioning management to the next generation. And you come at this from the exact opposite end. You were the the success C that came into the practice, bought out a founder, and is now transitioned and taken over the practice. And and so I feel like we're going to end out with this sort of yin and yang balancing act that Marty talked about what it was like to be a seller. And you can talk about what it's going to be like to be a buyer. We, we, I wish we had master engineered it as, as well as it's turned out. It really was a sheer coincidence, but I'm excited to, to kind of tell these opposite sides of the same story because th- there are so many succession plans out there that I see that try to come together and don't work out. And it's usually because of these just gaps in perception and understanding of what founders and buyers come to the table with. And so 
it's powerful to show both sides of the story. And you have, I think, a, a particularly successful succession plan story that you've actually lived through. Like you went through it and it worked. And so I'm really excited to have you share it today. Well, I'm happy to bookend this ad hoc mini series. And, you know, our, our plan now has been in place for over almost seven years now. And in many ways, we've been in the midst of the plan for so long that it almost, you almost forget because you kind of move through one phase and, and then you start making plans for the next phase of the business. So actually, given that our succession plan has sort of just come to the close within the last year, I think this is a great milestone for me to kind of reflect back on what's been happening as well as talk about what's coming up for the future for my business. So I'm, I'm happy to be here and, and looking forward to telling the story. So maybe as a starting point, just to, to paint the picture, can you tell us a little bit about Bluestem Financial Advisors just as it exists today? Like, what do you do? Who do you do it for? What is, what does that advisory business look like? Yeah, so we are a fee-only financial planning firm in Champaign, Illinois. And for those of you who are not familiar with Illinois, we are a couple hours south of Chicago. I know people think of Chicago when you think of Illinois first. Uh, we're the home of the University of Illinois. So we're a university town, metro area, probably 100, 120,000 or so. So our our clients, because of the university, that tends to be kind of our area of expertise. Two-thirds of our clients are university faculty, professors, as well as administrators. So kind of real quick background, I'm sure we'll dive into the details later, but it was started by my former business partner, now retired, Karen Folk. She was herself a professor, got her PhD here at the University of Illinois, taught in consumer sciences, decided academia wasn't quite for her, went off to do something more applied. She went and worked for the extension department, which essentially is a way for land-grant universities to take research and apply it and give it out to, to the community and to the, to the state. So she would go out and teach consumer education, did that for a while, and then ultimately, given state budget issues, not just in Illinois, but kind of nationwide extension departments weren't getting the funding they needed, she saw the writing on the wall, left, and ended up working for another professor who had retired and started doing some planning work. And when he retired, then she was kind of left to decide what to do and started her own firm. And that was in 1999. Sort of fast forward to 2008, I met her when I was a college student. That turned into a, a job, which turned into a succession plan, which turned into where we're at today. So so back to today, I currently have two other advisors. One is in a lead advisor role. The other is in a, an associate advisor role. And then I have two additional full-time support staff my director of client services, Mary Bess, so she kind of helps us run the office. And then I've got a calling of financial planning support specialist, which is the, the fancy term for paraplanner. But we've got grand ambitions for him as well. Interesting. So your so your staffing is 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 a bit like very advisor centric. So you 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 mentioned two advisors, a lead advisor, an associate, two full time support staff, a director of client service, and and another financial planning support, paraplanner roles, like four total people in the firm besides you, and three of them are focused around advisory. So two additional advisors in, in addition to me, so three advisors total, and then two support staff. And so what does the business look like in terms of clients, how many clients, or 
I don't even know how you size the business. Do you do you look at AUM? Do you look at number of clients? Do you look at revenue? Yeah, so we we're a retainer based model. So I don't tend to look at AUM too much because it's really hard to define what's managed versus what's under advisement and so forth. So we're currently at about I think 108 clients as of today, and we've been growing at a rate of about 12 to 15 new clients per year. And that's been pretty steady since I joined the firm. I think when I joined Karen in 2008, we were about 35 clients. And it was just Karen and then myself as the first full-time person. So quite a bit's changed in the past, not even quite 10 years. So what is a typical retainer fee in in Bluestem? Like what do, what do clients actually pay on average? And, and then how do you set those fees? Yeah, so I'd say we really have two sets of clients that we work with. We have the the more what you would think of as, I guess, the traditional financial planning client, the person in the mid to late career, they're starting to build up some assets, they're starting to think about retirement, how to simplify their financial life, all those sort of questions that go around that. So when they come in, they come in with portfolios anywhere from half a million to usually one and a half million, although we've got some higher than that. And their net worth is a little bit higher than that, you know, with house and other assets and so forth. Right. And then usually being in the university environment, they've also got pension, at least a pension, if not multiple pensions from different universities that they've accumulated along the way. Okay. So the the first year of working with a client, we base the fee on primarily income and net worth. And we do some adjustments for other complexity factors that usually pop up along the way. For example, if they're self-employed, have do a lot of consulting, writing books, things that add extra tax planning, we'll make some adjustments in there for that. If they've got a lot of pensions or other things that we're going to need to kind of work through and make decisions on, we might make some adjustments for the upfront work that's going to go on with that. So how does that fee get, that income and net worth fee get based? Like we, well, again, not coincidentally, so Last week, we talked to the planning center. They do a similar retainer fee based on income and net worth. Their formula is essentially half a percent of net worth plus 1% of income. And then there are certain assets like a home that they exclude because they're not actively giving any advice on the family residence you've been in. But like structurally, it's half a percent of income plus 1% of net worth. So are, are you a, a similar style formula? Do you, do you balance those percentages differently? Yeah, it's a very similar inputs into the calculation. We just use different percentages. So we actually do quite a bit higher percentage of income in the first year. Typically we do, well, I shouldn't say typically, it is 3% of income, although we will cap that usually around 300000 of income. And a big part of that is that we're a very tax-focused firm. We are very heavy on the tax planning. Tax preparation is typically included in our retainer. And so we're going to do a lot of legwork on the upfront around income and income tax planning. So we, we are a bit heavier on that. And then the net worth at this point, we do a half percent on the first 750 and 25 basis points on any net worth above that with a, usually a minimum in the first year of at least 4,000 for an, an, an initial retainer. And then for our Second years and beyond, we actually have a slightly different system that's essentially just net worth based. And we, again, will have a few adjustments for some of those complexities that will continue on after that first year. 
So can I ask what that looks like in, in future years if it's primarily net worth based? Do you just like, you know, instead of half a percent up to 750K and 25 bips above, it's just different percentages and different thresholds and you drop out the income formula entirely? Yeah, so we it's pretty much 3,000 ongoing plus 50 bips over 500,000 a quarter or 25 basis points over a million and 15 basis points for anything over that. So anything above 3 million. And then again, we have some of those adjustments. So we, we dropped the income component in renewal years because we found it was really hard to figure out exactly what income was. Do you use wages plus business income? What about rentals and consulting? And Do you do AGI, right? You get no right. weird issues with AGI, like... If I tell my client to contribute to a pre-tax account, I get paid less. Exactly. Above the line deductions. So like only give them advice on below the line deductions and above the line deductions, it makes you get paid less, right? So you really just migrate net worth based on an ongoing basis. And that way you don't have sort of the awkwardness around giving them advice on tax strategies that reduce your income, which would otherwise reduce your income-based fee if you were basing it based on income or AGI. That's right. Yeah. And there's times I... Sometimes I regret that. Sometimes I'm grateful that we did that. I think at the end of the day, what I've learned is there's really no perfect way to charge your clients. There's always going to be issues around are you entirely capturing the complexity and value of what you do. But at the end of the day, you know, we, the system works for us and it's about the best representation that we have currently of, of what we do for the clients. And all that really matters is, is the client okay with the fee? Are we feeling like we're adequately compensated for what we do. And if everyone's happy, it, it doesn't really matter all that much how we arrived at it. Well, and ironically, I feel like that's indirectly, that's part of the justification even for why AUM fees seems seems to actually, you know, stick and last as long as it has. Because at the end of the day, like it's not really about the portfolio per se, even if you're doing financial planning and tying the AUM fees. Like it's just a particular system and structure around how you arrive at a fee that either is or is not valued by the client and fair compensation for you for the work that you do. You know, the caveat to it is if you're AUM based, like you can only do this for a subset of clients who have assets. If you're net worth based, you can work with a different set of folks because you're not necessarily just tied to people that have liquid portfolios. But you know, it's still not really about the formulas necessarily. It's about do the formulas get you to a dollar amount that works for the client and works for you? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And so us being net worth based, you would think that that would sort of somewhat bias us towards higher net worth clients. But the reality is that our fees tear down much, much quickly, much more quickly than an AUM fee would. So for example, a $3 million net worth client is going to pay us somewhere in the ten dollars to $11,000 range, and then it's about 15 bips above $3 million. So it's not significantly fee increasing as the net worth climbs. So, And we do have a minimum fee for ongoing clients, which is $3,000. Plus, when we're starting with a new client, we've got that income component. So what that allows us to do is it allows us to work with younger clients who have potential either for, for growth, clients with higher incomes, and so forth. So what, what typically happens is younger clients, I'm charging much higher than an AUM advisor would. In fact, I can work with, you know, that young professional with student debt and a negative net worth and still charge them five to $10,000 for that upcom 
upfront plan because we're doing tax planning and we're getting them set up on all the things that need to happen in their early professional and family life, the fee will drop down in that subsequent renewal year because usually we get it all in place and then it's a lot less work ongoing. But then their fee is sort of gradually increasing year after year, which is a business model perspective is really nice to know that you know your clients are growing with you as opposed to your retiree clients, which tend to be a little bit more level fee once they come on. And I, and I guess when you flip off income and just go to net worth in subsequent years, if it's that classic high income negative net worth, your percentage fee would be 50 bips on a negative number kind of thing. But your your $3,000 minimum fee, I guess, is what solves that. And if they don't, if they're not at least comfortable paying out of income for what you're doing for them, then it's just not a good fit and they just don't work with you. And that's that. That's right. Yeah. So I I mentioned we kind of have those two types of clientele that we work with. So that first one was, you know, the more traditional. And then the second is, I understand, you know, young clients is not a niche. But at this point, there aren't a lot of other advisors that work with those high-income new professionals. So the clients that we're working with at, at that stage are usually, they're either new professors or just younger professionals, typically income in excess of 150000 But the real thing that's going on is they're having kids. That tends to be that financial life event that, that draws them in. If we talk to someone prior to having kids, for whatever reason, they just don't see the value in the planning. But having kids makes it real. You know, you've got to get your life together at that point. So that's, that's about the point where they'll actually sign on. Well, and I know you have a, a unique appreciation of that actually being a, a new father with a one-month-old baby girl at home. So you now have a, a unique way to share that perspective with your, <laughs> with your young professional clients who are making that life transition. That's right. I can absolutely understand the value of delegation now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Time yes. becomes a lot more precious. Yes. So what is, what is this kind of add up for clients overall? Like you've got a $3,000 minimum fee. Are most clients down towards the minimum or, or like does an average client end out at about $5,000 for you or $10,000 for you? Like where, where, where does that ultimately tend to land as a typical client? Yeah, so right right now I'd say we're kind of barbelled where we've got quite a few at the the higher end and quite a few at the lower end as we we tend to take on a mix of those near retirees and younger professional clients. So our our average fee right now is on a renewal basis is probably around 7500. Okay. As of last the last time I checked. But I guess ironically you you don't actually have very many paying 7500. You've like a whole bunch that pay three and a whole bunch that pay more than 10 and the average is 7,500 because that's the middle of the barbell. Right, exactly. But those those clients at the younger end, you know, they're some of them are sort of in that stage where their net worth is growing rapidly, so their fees go up quickly. And the clients at the higher end, the interesting thing about working with university professors is because they have a pension, they don't usually spend their portfolio, so their fees aren't really declining, but they're getting older and they're not going to be with us forever. So it's it's kind of a nice model. Again, you know, me being young and, and being a young firm, we've got clients at the higher end that give us the revenue now, but we've got clients in the earlier stages that will grow with the firm over time. So it's it's not to be crass about it, but like it's 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 kind of a diversification for the firm overall. You've got kind of older clients who are you know, blue chip stocks that pay a steady dividend as you service them, and you've got young clients that are 
like small growth stocks, they, they don't pay a lot of dollars now, but they're rapidly appreciating and can become valuable as clients in the future. And you, and you basically diversify between them. Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely never want to think about one individual client in that manner, but that's exactly right. And it, it was intentional, you know, knowing that, you know, you certainly want revenue and profitable clients now, but you also want to have future revenue growth to make it a, a viable business and something that's worth buying into. And so, I mean, do you track those kind of metrics on an, on an ongoing basis of like the, you, know, you said you'd looked recently that your average fee was around $7,500. I mean, do you, and that you know that your clients are distributed like a barbell. I mean, I think even that phenomenon, a lot of us probably deep down, if I said, you know, do you actually know what percentage of, of clients are at various fee points on your schedule? Not a lot of advisors could actually answer that off the top of their heads because we don't tend to keep that data handy. Like, are you are you data driven around that, or are you just immersed enough in your numbers that that you just know where everybody stands? Probably a little bit of both. So I, I do annual benchmarking. I've got a, a spreadsheet that tracks each year number of clients, number of new clients, revenues, all the expenses on a major category level, and then that spreadsheet then breaks down various different metrics on how are we doing in terms of. Overhead expenses, advisor costs, how are we doing on revenue per professional and revenue per staff member? And and then we use that to sort of do a rough valuation based on net operating profit each year. So I've got that. And then we've got various different data points. And we do track all of this. We do it both on a quarterly basis as we're meeting with our staff. We do it on an annual basis when we're doing our strategic planning. In addition to that, I've got some of the numbers because we just recently put together some of it for our client advisory board just as sort of a status update. Here's where we're at today. Here's where we're going. And let's show you where we're at so you guys know what we're talking about. Interesting. So you, you dropped a lot of interesting stuff there. I wanna I wanna dive into a little bit further. So you, you so you track all this on spreadsheets. Like so you you made your own Excel spreadsheet that just tracks all these various business metrics, the ones that you want to be tracking and monitoring. And and so you pull data from accounting, QuickBooks or whatever your accounting software is and wherever else you can't like populate it into this central like dashboard spreadsheet of how the business is doing. Yeah. And I wish I could take credit for it because it really is a, a great spreadsheet, but I got it from another advisor, Bill Starnes. So Bill is a fellow member of the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners with me. He had posted this many years ago on the the intranet for ACP and ended up doing a follow-up webinar on how he uses it. So we ended up we ended up grabbing it and I think we started it probably around 2010 as we were getting ready to start talking about succession planning. Used it to put together some historical numbers and, and start to give us some data as we started talking about valuation, but it, it's such a valuable tool that I, I make sure that we keep it going every year. So at the end of each year, I'll, yeah, we'll, we'll pull it up. We'll, we'll put in the numbers. And in fact, we rearranged our QuickBook chart of accounts to sort of line up with the key data points that we were going to need. And really one of the genius things about the spreadsheet that we use is the expenses were even categorized to sort of mimic all the compensation and, and other surveys that we get asked to do as advisors. So whenever we're asked to participate in 
those various surveys, we've got the data and it's really quite a breeze to fill them out and then get a free compensation report back from whoever's running them nowadays. Interesting. You know, maybe we'll reach out to Bill and see if he's willing to reshare a copy of the spreadsheet with our listeners here. I don't know if you've got a version you want to sanitize. Obviously, you don't want to share your business numbers, but you know, a clean version that you'd be willing to share. I think it's powerful that there's not actually a surprising dearth of tools to just help us actually run our businesses effectively as businesses and be able to track the pertinent data. Yeah, Bill Bill may be willing to share. And certainly, if you're a member of ACP, it's on the internet and there's plenty of resources to go with it. And we'll include a link out there as well. So for people who aren't familiar, ACP is the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners. Do you want to talk about ACP for a minute, Jake, just to give people context as like what it is since you mentioned it a couple of times here? Yeah, absolutely. So really, I had mentioned earlier on that Karen Folk had been the original founder of our firm in her prior years as a, an academic and professor, you know, not, not really a, a business owner or entrepreneur. And when she was looking to start a firm, she needed some resources to get herself launched. And at that time, I believe it was Cambridge Advisors at that point. It was run by Burt Whitehead. And it was essentially both a training platform as well as a professional organization to, to join up, get trained on both how to be an advisor, but also how to start and run your practice. And it's now been around for, gosh, quite a few years, over over 20 years. So I'd kind of say where it's at today, it's sort of the professional organization for advisors who want to operate under the retainer model, but also have a particular interest or expertise in taxes. So I'd say probably about 80% of the members of ACP do tax preparation as part of their services. And even those who don't do tax preparation, it's typically very tax-focused in the type of planning work. So it's kind of like a Garrett planning network or an XY planning network, just sort of a different flavor, I guess. Right. So, yeah, so Garrett focuses hourly for the middle class was kind of where they put their stake in the ground. ACP focuses around retainer models and tax-centric financial planning or tax-heavy financial planning. That's right. So... Interesting. So we'll maybe reach out to Bill and see if he's willing to share a version of the spreadsheet. For everyone who's listening, this is, again, episode 44. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 44, we'll see if we can post something there as kind of a business management spreadsheet maybe that folks can use and, and, and try out. There's a lot of – I find there's a lot of important numbers there of just you know the like the key performance indicators. So KPI is the acronym, like KPIs of an advisory firm that I find very few – advisors actually really pay attention to. I mean, the starting point is just things like average revenue per client. I mean, on average, how much do does a particular client pay you? Because the, the single greatest driver for growth and profitability of really any business over time is you know, does, does your typical client pay you, pay you more over time? Because if not, eventually you're going to have a problem in your business because your staff want raises. And if your clients aren't paying you more over time, eventually your profits get squeezed. But also looking at some of the other numbers that you mentioned, things like revenue per professional, revenue per staff member. Like you know, if you have a half a million, if you have a business with a half million dollars of revenue, well, you know, are you servicing that with yourself plus one staff member, plus two, plus three? Because that's a, a fundamental marker of efficiency. And, and the bigger the business, the more that the more that matters, right? If you can do this with one staff member plus yourself, your revenue per professional is $250,000. If it takes you 
three support folks, then your revenue per staff member is only 112500 Well, if your revenue is 112500 per staff member, you can only pay these people so much before there's going to be no profit left because you're not generating a lot of revenue per staff member. And it's just a way of thinking about the business that I find not not a lot of us tend to do in the advisory world, even though you know those benchmarking studies do report out those numbers. We just don't tend to spend a lot of time on them. Yeah, it's definitely one of the advantages of, of coming into a succession plan early in my career is you really get a sense as to what numbers drive the value of a business and therefore you focus building your business around the numbers that you should be hitting. There's nothing like buying in, committing to a giant debt to make you really focused on what actually creates yeah, the, exactly. the business. So what what do you look like what do you look at as the primary pieces that that you focus on? I mean you mentioned a few like revenue professional, revenue per staff member. I don't know if there's particular targets that you try to set for those or or what numbers do you do you pay attention to as a business owner and what do you shoot for? Yeah, I mean, I tend to be kind of the, the top-down type person, so I want to see the big picture first. And, and therefore, I, I tend to focus on first the high-level percentages. So that would be things like how do my revenues break down between direct expense, which is what does it cost to provide the financial planning services, i.e. advisor salary. So I call that kind of the direct expense. And if you look at almost any study or, or any any article on succession planning, typically you, you want to be at about 40% of revenue there. And we've never had a problem there. I, I think in the early years, I, we tended to underpay ourselves. So do you do you actually tag a portion of your compensation there as well? I mean, you're you're the owner of the business. At the end of the day, you keep all the dollars on the bottom line after everybody else gets paid. But do you like? Do you actually take a portion of your compensation? Say like, this is my salary. I'm going to classify up here as opposed to the rest that I'm going to take as my profits off the bottom. I do. Yes. Yeah. And that was something that we, when we partnered up, we had to pay ourselves a, a guaranteed partner stipend, and and we just I just continued that afterwards. And in fact, as an advisor, we have an advisor compensation plan. I, as an advisor, am paid the exact same way as my staff. Now, granted, I'm at a different level than them, but my compensation as an advisor is, is calculated in the very same way. Because you tie their compensation to clients or revenue or something to that effect. So you've got more clients, which means you you simply scale higher on your payments for that reason. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So then, of course, my second category I'm looking at is my overhead expenses, right? So that's everything else, my technology, my support staff, my office rent, and, and so forth. You know, again, typically a firm's going to look for overhead to be at about 35% or less. That's been an area that, you know, we've been in growth mode. We've been growing 15 to 25% a year for many years. That's been an area that we've never quite been under the 35% benchmark because every year, we reinvest into something new, you know, bigger offices, new furniture, new technology, new support staff, and so forth. But we're we're close. So in an ideal realm, twenty five percent profit margin is great for our business. We've been anywhere from probably more around twenty percent, which I feel very good about in a growth capacity. Bear in mind that you're you you again as the owner, like you participate in twenty percent of the bottom line. 
Plus, that's after you're taking your fair wage salary for what you're doing. That's right. Yeah. And and that's a number that I've I've always paid close attention to because as I was buying into firm and talking to other younger advisors, one of the things I heard from them is very well paid and I love what I do. I don't see much reason to buy into the firm because I'm already paid so well, there's not much profit left over. So I've always been very conscious of if I want to bring on additional partners in the future, which I do, there needs to be some incentive beyond you get to put you get to put partner next to your name on the business card. Yeah, David Grau did a fantastic book about this a couple of years ago around the theme of succession planning in general, but but in particular, like the dynamics and the problems that come up when basically when firms pay their advisors, call it too well. So his his book was called Succession Planning for Financial Advisors. We'll put a version of it in the in the show notes for people as well. But the like the point that he made is so many firms compensate you know, primarily or in some cases entirely as like a percentage of the revenue that you manage. And that's your sole determinant of comp. And, you know, it's sort of the typical model that we're all trained in. Like if you come out of a insurance company or a broker dealer of, of years ago, like everybody gets paid a percentage of their revenue. That's how it works. You know, the house keeps some and the rest goes to the advisor. But the problem that creates is if the advisor gets to a sizable level of income at some point, they're like, wait, let me get this straight. I take this slice of revenue. All I got to do is hold on to my clients. I don't even have to go get more of them because if I just sit on my backside, the fact that the market's going to double in seven to 10 years means my income's going to double in seven to 10 years by doing nothing. It's like, why would I take all the financial risk and the business stress and all the rest of buying into a practice and becoming a partner when I get basically all the secure upside now and I don't have to spend any time stressing about the business because I'm I'm not an owner. I just get my slice of the revenue and you can deal with making it profitable. And just there's that that split that comes, whereas when you have a compensation system that's a little bit more tied to maybe it can reflect your responsibilities in some way, but it's at least a little bit more tied to salaries and and fixed bonuses and and the upside is the profits on the bottom line. Now you actually want to be a partner because you want to get access to the the profits that you don't get. But when everybody gets paid revenue-based compensation as their their sole driver, you end out with a whole lot of profits that end out just going to the revenue share and then people don't want to buy in. Yeah, and we had to th- we had to think long and hard about our compensation plan before we implemented it and and Ultimately, we ended up coming up with kind of a mixture of the different models, which is a generous base salary because we are an ensemble, we are a team, and we want everyone to remember that ultimately you're a part of the firm, not these clients are mine and those clients are yours. But then we add on that an incentive component for the advisors who have control over workload and and so forth. And then in addition to that, we do profit sharing where essentially each year I say, here's what we're expecting, here are the places I'm reinvesting, and therefore a reasonable profit goal is X based on the reinvestments and, and so forth that we're making. And if we exceed that, then I'm happy to share the profits that we get above what I should get as the owner. So essentially I get the first percentage of profit, and then anything above what I set as that target, I'll share as a profit-sharing bonus. 
and you just put all those numbers out there for the for the staff. Everybody kind of knows what the what the revenue of the firm is and what the profit target is of the firm and and where their bonuses kick in. I do. Yeah, I think I think transparency is good. They're going to talk about it whether or not I give it to them or not. And somebody's going to see it, so I might as well just be the one to share it and control the way the conversation goes as opposed to you know the the break room chatter. So in terms of servicing these clients, you said you're doing financial planning for them. You said you're you're doing tax returns for them. Well, I guess you said you're doing tax planning. Are you literally doing annual tax preparation as well? For I'd say 90% of our clients, the preparation part is included. Okay. Yes. So effectively, yes, for almost every client. Okay. And and is that do you draw lines like look we'll we'll do your We'll do your personal return, but like we only do 1040s and simple schedule C's. If you got a zillion schedule E's because you got a ton of real estate, that's separate. And if you got business returns, like we handle those separately and bill you for those separately. Yeah, that's right. So we don't do any business. I don't do any corporate S corps. I don't do any trust states. You need someone who just does tax returns. Primarily, we'll do 1040s. We'll do Schedule Cs. You're right. If it gets more complicated than I've got a rental property or two that I've acquired along the way, you need to have someone that's doing your taxes who, again, that's all they do. And in that case, we've got some a couple of CPAs in town that we work with and we have a good relationship with. But we find that in terms of doing the tax preparation, there's two pieces to it. First of all, with the level of tax planning that we want to be doing with each and every one of our clients you almost need to go through the tax return line by line to understand where that number's coming from and how it's affecting the tax plan. And at that point, you might as well just put the data into the tax software anyway. What's your tax software of choice? Yeah, so we use Lacert, which is an Intuit product, which is the you know, maker of QuickBooks and so forth. I'd say on the pricier end of the systems out there, but at the end of the day, we want to we want the Cadillac product, right? We don't want to spend our time second-guessing our software or trying to figure out where a number goes. Rather, pay a premium and, and make sure the tax preparation process is as, as smooth as possible. So you, you try to make back the cost of the software on the savings of your time and staff time for not needing to deal with issues that crop up. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a year that goes by where the tax software doesn't give us an alert that says, hey, we noticed this. There might be something wrong with your input or did you know about this tax rule, which may affect the way that you report X, Y, and Z? And I mean, even one of those, if you catch one error on a tax return, the tax software is probably paid for itself. Okay. Interesting. And and so, I mean, how how messy does this make just the management of the business when every time late winter and spring roll around, like you're 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 buried in doing ninety to a hundred individual tax returns. I mean, does that swing the whole business? Do you just deal with it and schedule fewer financial planning client meetings in that time period? Do you hire up a bunch of seasonal help? Like how do you how do you deal with that in the in the context of the overall business? Yeah, well there's there's definitely a seasonality I'd say in, in terms of our, our client process. So historically we would try to do both the tax preparation and the planning all at the same time. And when we were smaller and had fewer clients per professional, that was manageable. But now that we're getting larger and our team is growing and we want to continue to scale, we're finding that 
deadline for taxes is not getting any farther out and, and tax materials come later and later. So at this point, I think we're going to have to move to a model of essentially for our ongoing current clients, the only thing we do from late February through early April is tax preparation. But recognizing that tax time is also when we bring on a majority of our new clients. I, I, so when I say majority, I mean in terms of if we bring on 15 new clients a year, half of them may come in from January to March because they're looking at their tax return, they're getting their tax information together, and they're realizing, you know, not only do I have questions on my taxes, I've got other things that need attended to. And so it just tends to be a good time for them to call us up. So we'll have to always leave room in our calendar to meet with and, and onboard those newer clients in tax time. Okay. And part of the reason you get these influxes is just because you're, you're known for being a tax-centric firm. So if having new kids isn't the pressure point that makes them actually take the time to seek you out, tax season is. You know, we don't really market our our tax preparation because that's not, you know, I wouldn't say that's our core value add. The tax planning is, is a big part of what we do, and we definitely emphasize that. But, you know, I think I think part of it is just, I think a lot of people probably start thinking about this at the same time that they're doing the return. And part of it may also have to do with the seasonality of, of universities. You know, spring break falls right in tax season, so people have got time then. They tend to want to work on getting things in order over the summer when their teaching load might be a little less. So there's there's probably a lot of different factors, but it, it certainly doesn't hurt that at the same time that they're feeling this pain point of, I got to get my return filed, that when they call us, we're like, well, yeah, we can handle your tax return and we can do all these other things that you need to get done as well. So a, a lot of a lot of my colleagues who do tax preparation, they'll say the tax preparation is just, it's a sticky item, right? Once they start working with you, they love that everything's done in-house, right? They don't have to go coordinating between multiple professionals to get data from their advisor to take over to their CPA. And if they ever want to leave you, not only do they have to find a new person to do financial planning and manage their portfolio and so forth, but they have to go out and find a new tax advisor, a new tax preparer. And I think that's almost just as painful as <laughs> having to find a, a new investment manager. I guess just with the caveat that, like, it's great to have clients that are stickier as long as you don't blow up your own practice trying to deal with the annual tax season and just have the either have the capacity to do it or a, or a, a plan about how you can do it. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, it's definitely in our my field of vision that as we get larger, we may have to have a team that focuses on the tax preparation so that advisors aren't sort of always divided dividing their time between the preparation season of the year and then the other planning and investment reviews that we need to do with our clients. And so was was taxes your background as well? Were you an accounting student originally and came through as a CPA to be doing this work? It was not, no. So I was consumer economics and finance focus, which is a fancy way of saying consumer econ and family studies. Came out, got my CFP started working for Karen who did tax preparation. So I took the H&R Block tax course to figure out how to do it. And my first year out of school, I had some extra time because I was used to working, you know, 20, 30 hours a week and 
a full-time college student, so I worked for Karen full-time, and then I went ahead and prepared taxes for H&R Block for a season just to sit across from a client and get some experience. After I did that, I went ahead and continued on and got my enrolled agent just because I thought furthering my tax knowledge would be a good thing, and it's definitely paid off. Okay. And so you're and so you're signing off on returns as an EA at this point. That's right. Okay. Yep. So what is the rest of the kind of the technology infrastructure of the the business look like? You know, there's, I mean, classically we've got some kind of CRM, some kind of planning software, some kind of investment management tools. So I don't, I don't even know. You haven't said you like. Do you actually manage portfolios as well? Is that part of the service offering for the retainer fee, or are you just doing financial planning and tax work, and then you know they can go find their own investment solution, or you'll recommend one that they self-direct it? Yeah, so we we include the investment management as part of what we do, and it's it's sort of actually one of those items that's in flux. Historically, we we did everything on a non-discretionary basis, meaning. We would set up custodial accounts if the clients wanted to or needed us to. Everything was managed through Excel spreadsheets, so we would just plug in the custodial accounts plus the outside accounts and figure out a plan to rebalance, give the recommendation to the client. And if it was a custodial account, the client would tell us, yes, go ahead, rebalance the account. If it was a non-custodial account, we'd tell the client what to do, and usually the expectation was the client would do it. As we started growing, we realized... It's better to be standardized. You don't want to have some clients doing this, some clients doing that, you know, and have this whole spectrum of responsibility. So we've been really moving everyone towards as much as possible. Let's get you into our primary custodian, which is TD Ameritrade. Because we work with so many university professors, we're also on the Fidelity platform and the NTI Cref as well. So most of our client accounts are spread out among those three custodians, and we're moving all of those to a discretionary management. But because I'd say our firm was sort of born in this model of, of comprehensive and holistic, we've always felt like you can't build a good, tax-efficient, holistic portfolio without taking into account the client's entire financial picture. And so we knew if we ever wanted to move towards a technology solution, we needed something that could pull in every account, not just the custodial accounts. So a few years ago, when Cheryl Rowling of TRX was sort of expanding that product, she had bought out a portfolio accounting system that I I can't even remember what the name of it was originally. She had rebranded it to TPX, so I think it was Total Portfolio. Yeah, Total, yeah, total Portfolio Expert, yep. Yeah, so we, we signed on as that transition was happening. So we used that in conjunction with Buy All Accounts to download the outside accounts, and then we used TRX as our rebalancing system. Subsequently, after Cheryl had done all that, then Morningstar swooped in and bought up TRX, and then TPX then transitioned over to Power Advisor. Essentially, one of their key employees bought out the company and continued the portfolio accounting system. So it's been, you know, a few transitions along the way, and it's it's not the slickest of systems in terms of like the user interfaces, not as fantastic as Orion, for example. But it it does everything we need it to do, and because they're a small company, we know the owner very well. He's been extremely gracious in helping us set things up the way that we want and customizing everything to really make it do all the things that we want it to do. And and are you still kind of using them to get like are you still on 
TRX for the rebalancing plus TPX for the portfolio reporting? That's right. Yeah. So we just, you know, have to write two checks instead of one each month. So. So that's, so that's on the portfolio side. Then what do you guys use for CRM and financial planning software? So our CRM is Redtail. We chose them many years ago, I think 2010 or so, when we were just kind of getting going on building up the business. And I'm very process-driven. You know, I like workflows, and I, I want to make sure that everything is systematized and organized and everyone knows who's responsible for what in the client process. So we've spent many years building out the workflows and the checklists and all of that. And so we're, we're sort of tied or, or maybe even stuck is the right word with Redtail for the time being. I think in terms of an out-of-box system, it's it has a lot of functionality. We're also kind of getting to the point where I feel like I'd like to be able to customize and build custom reports and have more control over the ability to put in the data that we want and manipulate it in the ways that we'd like to. But we're not quite big enough where I feel like I can justify the cost of something like a, you know, a Salesforce or an Accelerate where we really build it out to our specification. So we're, we're kind of in this middle ground. Where would you go next? I mean, I guess the next step very much is Salesforce if you want to do that level of customization. Yeah, I think in my mind, the, my end goal would be, you know, being able to, to build something a little bit more customized, but I, I don't want to be in the technology game and not sure we're quite big enough to have an in-house person or, or outsource to the level that we'd need to, to have it really function the way that we'd like it to. And then planning software? Yeah, so planning software, we're, I'd say we're still mostly Excel-based. And the reason for that is, is so our model of working with clients is we're very modular and, and it's very sort of conversation driven. So we don't do a, a lot of financial planning in the back office. So what I mean by that is I've got a back office staff. They help us get ready for meetings, but they're just getting the data ready so that the advisor can sit with the client and have a conversation about their financial life. So a tax planning meeting or a portfolio analysis meeting, you know, we're kind of pulling things up, looking over it, with the client explaining, here's where you're at based on where you want to get to. Here's our analysis. And then it's just very conversational. And I know some of the planning softwares are starting to move in that direction where it's more of a, a conversation tool as opposed to spitting out pages and pages of reports. But we just haven't found one that quite fits the, the way that we want to have that conversation. We really don't want to spend hours and hours plugging in data to get super fancy reports because we're really under we have the idea and, you know, our job is not to give the client the expectation of the future, but really just have a conversation about where you're at and what are the priorities. So we keep, keep it pretty simple on that end right now, uh, but we're, we're looking. Yeah. We, we did a recent article on the blog as well. I kind of griped about this, that, that planning software is generally, it's almost always built for this like giant build up to the plan capital T capital P and granted a lot of us kind of build up to comprehensive plans that way but if you want to do it more modularly if you want to do it in 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 kind of pieces that build with a client over time particularly with younger clients you can't it's just it's not really built to be modular for conversations that feed into a whole it's like either you use really limited planning software that just does simple stuff, but then it doesn't have the detail for a tax-centric advisor like you, or it's so comprehensive, you you can't do it in pieces. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Yeah, and and one of our big projects this year is really to move more towards simplifying the outputs that we're giving our clients. You know, we used to send them essentially the the meeting recommendations where we, you know, here's what we did, here's what we talked about, here are the outcomes, here's an explanation of these concepts that we talked about, and it took us forever to type it all up and proofread it and make sure the client understood what was going on. And then when we asked them, well, what do you think of it? They're like, well, it's great. You know, it's nice to reference back to, but honestly, we don't read it half the time or even probably 75% of the time. We don't read all the information you're sending us. So that was kind of our light bulb moment when they told us, you know, really all that we want from you is a scorecard, right? Are, are we doing what we need to do? And if not, what are the areas we need to improve upon? So we're really moving towards, okay, how can we in one page or less give you a snapshot of here are the areas you're doing well in, here are the areas that need your immediate attention, and here are some things that we'll sort of put on the back burner and, and get to when the time comes. So to sort of steal Carl Richards' one-page plan idea, that's that's literally what we're trying to do is here's a one-page snapshot of your financial life. Well, and we had a planner named Matthew Jarvis on the podcast as well. He was on episode seven, so kitsis.com slash seven if anyone wants to go back and listen to it. And and Matthew has a similar thing that that he just – they just do like a, basically an annual one-page plan. He's very focused around retirees, so it's kind of this update on what your distribution rate is and you know where it sits relative to what's prudent and are you in the guardrails. And and it's just a one-page plan update. And like his clients love it, and he's got this hyper-efficient practice where he has very limited staff and takes a whole lot of time off and still drives a lot of revenue in the business, all because he's you know, he's gotten really efficient by doing things like not giving clients giant reports or massive plan updates that eventually when he asked them, he realized no one was reading it anyway. So why do you keep taking all the time and effort to produce it? Yeah. And I, I, I listened to that episode and I think the one thing that still resonates in my mind is if the client doesn't ask for a copy of it, they probably don't want to see it. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a good reminder. Like just think of all the stuff you, you produce in a meeting. If the client doesn't say at the end, hey, can I have a copy of that to take with me? Probably don't care that much. I mean, maybe they care that you presented it to them in the meeting, but like maybe that doesn't need to be a thing you're sending them. Right. Now, yeah, there, there certainly is this proverbial issue of clients want to know that you're taking care of the details, but they don't want to see it. They just, they just want the summary. It's one of the reasons why I've kind of maintained like they're, there actually still is some value to that big upfront plan for those who do it, even if the client's never going to crack the spine on that thing once they leave your office, because part of them getting comfortable and trusting you in the first place was that you could demonstrate you really knew your stuff and did the work because there was a giant plan there. They don't want to take the time to read it, but it is trust affirming for them to see it there sometimes. So there, there is some balance to that of, I don't know that we can like, it might be true that I could boil a lot of my clients' situations down to like finance tips that I would write on an index card, and they might all be right, and I could just hand it to them after the first meeting on a three-by-five, but it doesn't mean they would actually accept the advice or trust me, even if it's right, because there's still some parts of the trust-building process that involve actually demonstrating your capabilities and your expertise. Yeah, and, it, and it's nice to be able to look back and say, you know, you remember when we were at this point three years ago and look at how much you've accomplished, you know, great job. 
now what's the next big item that we need to tackle? So, so there definitely is, you need to be able to tell the story of what's been going on and the progress that the client's made. So you, you want to have some, some documentation of what's happened in the past. You don't necessarily need to go through it all or show the client every single detail at every point along the way. So I, I want to shift a little bit. You, you, you mentioned kind of very briefly in passing that you were a student in college. You met Karen in 2008 while you were, while you were still in school and started working with her. And then you began the succession plan in, in a few years later in 2011. And, and I'm just kind of sitting here doing the math in my head. And like, so you graduated at like 21 or 22. And by 25, you're buying a firm. So can you talk to us a little bit about, I don't know, all of that, that transition? How do you, how do you get to the point where three years after you take a job, you're buying the, you're buying the owner out or at least starting the process? Can you, can you just take us through all of that? It was extremely fast. I'll point out to, to listeners, this is probably not the, the, the standard by which you want to judge your own progress. So, right. I started interning for Karen in the summer of 08. I was on track to graduate that fall. Probably to my good fortune, not so much Karen's. She had two part-time administrative assistants at that time. They both ended up leaving to pursue other careers, which sort of opened up this, hey, do you want to not only stay on and help me kind of cover some of this additional administrative work, but also if, if things go well this fall, we'll talk about a job when you graduate in December. So Karen and I, you know, during that period, I'd say we got along very well. We share a lot of, I'd say, life values and, and so forth. So it was just a really natural fit. And probably by September of, of that year, we had decided, you know, let, let's give this a go and see how it might work. So I had the benefit of coming into a practice that was very lifestyle focused in that, you know, Karen wasn't trying to grow this thing to the biggest it could be. And she really was more focused on, I want to work the amount that I want to work and I want to have time to spend with my family. And at that time, her dad was still around and, you know, she'd take every Tuesday off to go hiking with him and so forth. So that also meant that she had a lot of time to devote to me. And so I'd say she was really my first professional mentor where not only was I getting a boss, but I was getting sort of a paid mentor whose only focus and attention was on making sure that I developed because in order to make it work, we were going to have to grow the firm to support paying me. And just really fast, like there is actually an important note in there that I think often gets lost is just this recognition that if you want to make it work, like particularly when you're an individual advisor, if you want to make it work as you're bringing on new advisors and, and, and younger staff, like you need to grow to make it work and like not to knock anybody who wants to have a, a lifestyle practice and that, and that balance. You know, we've had a number of guests on the podcast that, that want that, but recognize the trade-off that goes with that, that, you know, you're only ever going to feel like hiring people is a step backwards for you if your business isn't growing. Cause literally they're going to carve out a portion of your income. If, you want hires to be accretive, you know, you hire more people and you make more money and the business is more successful. Like you have to have growth along with that. That's, that's how you pay for it. That's how the math has to, that, that's how you make the math work. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think going into it, we were both taking on a risk. 
So Karen's Karen's risk was she's going to take a significant chunk of her revenue and, and use it to pay me in the hopes that I help grow the firm. And as the firm grows, we both benefit. The risk that I was taking is she couldn't afford to pay me very much. I think I started out somewhere in the, the 12 or $13 an hour range. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm coming out of a, a top-tier university at a salary well under 30000 a year. But I... I had the fortune that my parents lived close by. I could stay with them for a little while while I got my financial footing. And Karen promised, you know, she said, as this thing grows, I'm going to compensate you for the value that you're adding. And she kept to that promise. You know, every six months I got generous pay raises as the, as the firm started to grow. And one of the first projects she gave to me was, okay, let's, let's put together a five-year business plan. How are we going to make this work? And... You know, I, coming out of school, I, I really didn't have that much of a business focus. So putting together a business plan was pretty new to me. And as I started to put numbers into a spreadsheet, I realized, you know, we were really going to have to grow. And not only do we have to grow, we got to raise fees and we've got to, you know, we got to have some staff to leverage our time because eventually, you know, we're going to run out of time that I can't be stuffing and folding envelopes and so on and so forth. And I, I think a lot of that impressed Karen. It showed her that I had the grit, I had the the interest in making this work. And so that probably only furthered her willingness to devote time to me, to, to sort of mentor me. So pretty much from that point forward, our primary goal was just get new clients. You know, so she had been in practice a little under 10 years at that point, plus been in the community for a long time. So we just started putting out the word, you know, we're accepting clients. She had been sort of in a maintain mode for so long that she had done a lot of projects for people who needed help, but she didn't have capacity for. So we got some of those converted into retainer clients and started getting people that we knew, you know, professionals and so forth, letting them know, hey, we, we are accepting new clients. And as each new client came in, that was an opportunity for Karen and I to work on them together. So it was a training opportunity for me. But then those were the perfect clients for Karen to then hand over to me when I was then ready to start working with clients on my own. So what did that, I mean, what did that process look like? How do you, how do you know when you're ready? How did she hand things off to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm not sure how you know when someone's ready, right? Sometimes you just eventually got to let them try it out and fail and learn from their mistakes. But the way that we did it is from the, the day I started with her, I was sitting in client meetings on the computer, taking notes, helping her run the software. And then just sort of incrementally, I would take more and more responsibility, both in pre preparing for the meeting, following up from the meeting, and then eventually running parts of the meeting. And, and in fact, I ended up putting a timeline in place, both for myself and for Karen's sake, that said, you know, by such and such date, I'm going to be doing this meeting, right? So I'm no matter what, I'm going to be running an estate planning meeting with clients by fall. So you would you would target it by meeting type, not necessarily like I'm going to have these eleven clients by the fall, but like I'm going to be doing the estate planning meeting of our modular process by the fall. Exactly right, and it somewhat lined up with. I had to get my CFP because at the time. The University of Illinois was not yet a board-registered program, so I sort of lined it up with, as I finish each course, I'm then ready to hold that meeting. But it sort of forced me to, to be ready because, you know, you're not always confident as a as a new professional that you've got the skill set, so it kind of forced me to do it. 
and again, Karen spent lots of time with me. You know, we'd do mock appointments. She would give me feedback after each meeting. We'd talk about the next meeting coming up, and we'd be talking about what's the goal of the meeting, what do I want to accomplish, and so forth. So it was a very interactive process. And, and that's something that we even try to do today with my younger advisors is that's the way that we train them. You know, you're in meetings from day one. Your job is not only to support us, but to learn how to be an advisor yourself. And so you don't, you don't struggle with just the cost of it, the productivity of it. Like you're an experienced professional. You can take your own meeting notes. You don't really necessarily need someone else there to do it. Like does that does that ever slow you up to say, why am I spending all the dollar? You know, when you're looking at margins that are not where you're at, not where you want them to be. And, and you're saying, I, you know, we're doing double duty on every planning meeting that I'm could competently run solo. Like, I mean, do you, do you get hit with that kind of second guessing to yourself? I mean, we've been doing it for so long at this point, it, it's almost second nature, but, but yeah, I mean, we, in fact, we just had a meeting this morning about, when do we need to hire our next advisor? And a big part of our capacity issue is every meeting, there's an advisor leading the meeting and an advisor sort of second chairing. And that commits a lot of man hours, which limits your capacity, you know, for a number of clients per advisor. Do you, do you have a target on where you actually set that of number of clients per advisor? It's still in a work in progress. You know, our, our ultimate model is to, to do the diamond team. So if you're familiar with Angie Herber's white paper on how to structure advisor teams, which again, I highly recommend listeners go out and read her paper. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for anyone who's, who's interested. So I, I think Angie's metrics are, are a bit ambitious for the type of service that we do. So I would say a, a fully formed diamond team, we're probably looking at servicing around 150 clients. So that would be a senior advisor, two leads, and an associate. So you end up at, at kind of 50, 50 clients per advisor. Right. Now, in the future, if we continue to grow and we start to get more dedicated, you know, not only have a back office, but have back office teams, I could certainly see that number inching up a little bit. But at the end of the day, you know, it is a cost to have two people in those meetings, but the biggest barrier to growth for our firm is not finding clients, our biggest barrier to growth is having the, the advisors to support the people who want to work with us. And therefore, I've got to be willing to invest the, the time and money into training those people so that they can eventually serve clients. Well, And I think it's worth noting, even when you kind of break down some of the numbers that you had, you, know, you said your, your average client's about $7,500 of revenue. So if there's 50 clients per advisor, there's $375,000 of revenue per advisor. If you're trying to pay, if you're trying to keep your direct expense, the, the cost of advisors to service the clients at 40% of the revenue, that means the advisor can make $150,000 serving those 50 clients at the typical size for your firm. And like, it's a good number, right? I know, I know plenty of people are very happy if their job was, okay, you need to do awesome financial planning, make sure these 50 people stay around, we'll pay $150,000 a year, that's it. That's a sweet gig. Right. And if the firm gets big enough, you know, you can really start to hone in and specialize, right? If you want to work with high net worth clients, you know, and, and have a higher per client average fee, that's great. Or if you want to work with simpler clients and just, you know, come in and do a great job, but it's up to each advisor, the, the client base that they want to build. 
Well, and, and to me, that's, that's one of the reasons why, you know, as we were talking about earlier, like why these business benchmarking metrics matter so much, why things like average revenue per client matters so much. You know, if you're, if your average revenue per client was only $4,000, then a base of clients is only $200,000 revenue. If an advisor is going to get paid 40% of that, you're down to $80,000 and that includes no other staff support. And like the, the math doesn't start to work very well. So now they have to service 75 clients or 100 clients so you can get the number back up. It, just that, that phenomenon of like, th- this is why numbers like the average revenue per client matter so much because the average revenue per client and the number of clients you have per advisor is what ultimately drives to how much revenue does an advisor earn, what compensation are they going to earn as a percentage of that revenue, and can you still compensate the advisor and then cover your overhead costs and then still have a profit as a business owner. Exactly. Yep. So so your so your process with Karen started with this I'm sitting in on meetings, I'm seeing how you do the meetings, then at some point I get to run this type of meeting, and then you I guess you added the meeting types over time until you were doing a lot of them. At what point did that shift from simply you're an advisor working in Karen's practice because you're learning to be an advisor and she's paying you and you're trying to grow it together to, to make the, the numbers work for everyone to, hey, I actually want to buy this. Like, was it the plan from day one that you were coming in as a succession plan or were you simply coming in for a job and then later it turned into a succession plan? It was a, it was a little bit of both. It was a, I'm coming in for a job, but if this works out well, the ability to buy in was on the table. And so it was pretty fast. I mean, by 2010, I'm starting to not only take over the clients that we, Karen and I had worked on jointly, but I'm also starting to take on any of the new clients that the firm's bringing on as the lead advisor. It was at that point that Karen's like, all right, well, you know, things are going well. You're doing great. Let's talk about what a succession plan is going to look like. So this is really only, you know, two years into my professional life couple of years working for Karen, I mean, two to three, depending on if you count the internship or not, that we really started seriously talking about what, what would this thing look like going forward. And in 2011, we actually, in January, we said, you know what, we're going to take a pause from bringing on new clients so that we have the time to have the conversations about what a succession plan is going to look like. And essentially what we did is we came up with an outline of here's everything we need to talk about to put together a succession plan. So everything from what are the expectations on, you know, purchase price and the way that we're going to structure that sale to what technology are we using? What are our expectations for future compensation and types of clients that we want to work with to the conversations about, well, what if one of us, you know, down the road has mental issues or becomes an alcoholic, you know, what, how do we deal with? I mean, were were you pushing these conversations? Was Karen pushing these conversations? It was driven by. So we ended up getting some information from David Goad, who's different than David Grau, but he's another succession planning expert. He had sort of this outline of here are all the things you need to talk about before you can put together or put in action a succession plan. And at the time. He said we were too small. He wasn't going to work with us, but he'd give us some of these resources. So we took it and ran with it. And some of it, some of the conversations I definitely felt like we needed to have and others were 
on the checklist, so we had them, and it turned out it was a good thing. And others of them, I'm not sure how much they contributed to the to the conversation. But I think at the end of the day, a partnership is really it's a it's a professional marriage, and you've got to date before you can get married, and you've got to make sure expectations are clear. So the real value is just having the conversations about what we both want and what this thing's going to look like, so that before we sign on the dotted line, we make sure we can work together well. Well, I think it's a good way to frame it that partnership basically is like a professional marriage that you know, you you have to go through the dating process. I mean, you got to take time to really get to know each other and get comfortable that you want to be in business together because as with almost any as with almost any marriage, like disputes are going to come up, fights are going to come up from time to time. Like either you're with someone that you're ready and willing and able to work through the arguments and disputes that are going to come up or the business is going to fall apart. And as with getting divorced from a marriage, getting divorced from a business partner can also be quite spectacularly expensive. Right. Right. And, and to sort of continue that analogy, I mean, one of the things I think that made it work so well is that Karen never came into this as this was my business. This was my baby. I, I started it. I, I got it off the ground and therefore I need control. It was always, we're going to be business partners. This has got to have your footprint on it as much as it has mine. And in fact, to even move away from the, the marriage analogy, she knew one day I was going to buy this firm from her. And, and in order for me to have an interest in it, it was in many ways going to have to eventually have both of our visions attached to it. But in many ways, it would have to continue to evolve more towards my long-term vision in order to for me to be willing to buy her out when she was ready to, to retire. I feel like that's one of the things that gets missed a lot in the in the succession planning conversation. You know, as as founders, I find I mean most founders is I I made this thing, I built this thing. It's my baby. I'm very proud of it. I wanna, you know, sell it to someone who's who's gonna take care of it and, and continue this vision that I that I set for it. And the problem is that's not really actually what most buyers wanna buy. Buyers don't want to buy a founder's vision. A buyer buys the advisory firm that they think it can become. And when founders try to shoehorn too much of the vision to their, the way they saw it originally and the way they wanted it, you, even if it's right and excellent and successful and profitable and all those wonderful things, it makes it less appealing to the buyer because at the end of the day, most buyers, particularly in advisory businesses, like we're not investor cash buyers, which is like, hey, you got an awesome vision. It's profitable. Great. I want to plunk down some money and get a piece of that profit cash flow. Like that's how a private equity investor buys. But that's not how successors buy advisory firms. Successors buy advisory firms because you want to buy into what you think it can be. And if the successor doesn't have the opportunity to shape it, even during that process, then all, all you can see from the successor's end is, I can't wait until the owner's out of the way so I can fix this thing the way that I want it to be. And the more you build up that tension, the less likely it is that the buyer wants to bother to follow through. Right. And yeah, and so speaking of, you know, buying what it could be, you know, I mentioned we started putting together these benchmarking reports. You know, we're looking at the, the business and at that point, it's a lifestyle practice and it's really not profitable, right? Karen's taking a salary, I'm getting paid. But there's really no profit left after that because it was run 
so lean and we weren't charging enough and all these other factors. But I knew that we had 10 plus years in the community. We had great goodwill. We were growing. We both worked together well. So what I was buying was not the current profitability. What I was buying is the future potential of this business. So it was, it was interesting, right? You know, how do you put a value on something that's not yet profitable? At the end of the day, we just had to pick a number that we were both comfortable with and that we thought the profits of our future growth would support payments for. And so that's what I bought. So how did you come to a number? Like, did you, did you do some multiple of the revenue? Did you do some multiple of the profits? Did you like a project the future growth and then calculated a discounted cash flow back to back to present? Like how did you come to a number? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was sort of all the above and also none of the above in, in the sense of we ran valuations for all those different methods. And one of the things that we found is you can easily manipulate those numbers, right? If you want a higher valuation, you drop the advisor salary a little bit. If you want lower valuation, you tweak some other number in terms of estimating future cash flows and so forth. So I think what we found helpful was by running all the different variations, we got different numbers. We could average them together. We could go back and say, well, what was the average of the past three? And what was the average if you sort of project forward and do like a rolling average? And then we also looked at what do we think cash flow is going to look like and how much would that support in terms of a purchase price? And we just, at the end of the day, we just picked a number that we were both comfortable with and said, that's what we think it's worth today. And so we're getting ready to sort of sign the contract. And and what we're thinking at that point is, well, let's use the valuation that we're comfortable with today. And then every year going forward, we'll revalue the firm based on the net operating profit. And we'll use a three-year average for me to buy the remaining share. So essentially I would pay up front for the first 50% so that we could be equal partners. I'll take on a note payable to Karen for the next five years. And then at the end of five years, we'll revalue the firm based on some average of how the net worth or how the value of the firm has changed. And then I'll buy the remaining piece in increments at that new value every year. So that, that was kind of my expectation. So, so five, I just, that's interesting structure. I just want to make sure I understand this. So you'd like, you'd buy five, you buy, you buy 50% upfront with a five year note. And then you say at the, at the end of the five year term, like once the note is paid off, then you come back to the table to basically say, now we're going to buy the other 50% and we're going to, you know, reset the value to where we are now five years later. So, you know, Karen gets to participate in the upside for the 50% share that hasn't been sold yet. That's right. That was, that was our original plan. And we were going to do an average where instead of just saying five years later, here's the new value, this is what you pay for the next 10%. We were going to say, let's average the five-year growth so that we both benefit from that valuation going up. Okay. So, so you don't, you don't fully just re-anchor it on the new number five years from now. You're going to do it like an, an average over the five-year time horizon, which effectively means you you kind of split the growth between you. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Now, what ended up actually happening is pretty much in the 11th hour, Karen came back and said, you know what? I'm comfortable with our original valuation. You pay me 50% now, and I will give you an option to purchase the remaining 50% in year five, and you can buy it 10% a year from year five to year 10. Just at 
whatever value it would be then or like anchored all the way back to the original value. So she, yeah, she pretty much just anchored it back to the original value and, and she, and it's, it's not that, it's not that Karen isn't, you know, business minded. She just was financially independent and her main goal was make sure this thing runs smoothly. She was never trying to maximize value. And so we ended up setting the valuation a little bit higher at the, the four, at the start because of that. But, I certainly wasn't going to turn it down, and Karen was well aware of she would lose out on the potential growth of the value of the business. Now, if you talk to her, the, the way she says it is, she benefited along the way as the firm grew, her profit share grew, she got more profit than she ever would have if she had just stayed a solo lifestyle practice. But the reality is, is the firm grew along the way, and so an option that was essentially worth nothing in year one at year five was worth quite a bit. Right. So. And I mean, that's an important piece to, to bear in mind, like even as she's, as she's selling 50% of the first five years and then you get to the second five years and you've got this option to buy the rest at the original price, you've also been growing the business along the way. And even by year five, she still owns the other 50% and she's still getting profit distribution on the 50% that she hasn't let go of yet. So you're highly incentivized to grow the business because that implicitly makes your option more valuable. But if you grow the business, you are also growing her profit distributions for the next five to 10 years as she kind of weans down the size of the ownership share that she had. That's right. Yeah. And so can I ask, I mean, how did you end out pegging a value at the, at, at the end? Like just, you came up with this, like, Hey, we were going to do two times revenue, but since we're including this option, we'll do it at 2.2 times revenue and and that's the number, and then off you went? Let's see. I actually have a spreadsheet pulled up from our old business. It, it looks like roughly the number that we came up with was about one times gross for the, the purchase price at the start, and that was the number that was pegged to for the entire purchase price. But again, remember, we're saying one times gross, but there was zero profit at that point. So the entire plan was based on the fact that we're going to continue to grow at some point in the future, there's going to be value as we move into a profitability right. phase. Like, you know, good news. You're buying at one times gross. Bad news is you have to pay all of that from your personal cash flow and your salary. Cause there's no profits to fund it. Yeah. I mean, looking at it at the start, there was certainly that potential. What ended up happening is we, we did grow quickly. And so there were years where it was literally, you know, skin of your teeth, sort of, there's just enough profit to pay the note. But yeah. But eventually it got to the point where the revenue grew and the profits grew and there was even some profit left over after the note payment, which is certainly nice. Well, and, and that's the nature of why deals like this work, where you you structure them over time and you and you sequence them over time. You know, as the person who's buying in, once you take that note on, you are highly incentivized to make that thing grow, to get a little more cash flow going. And as the seller, if you're not selling all of it at once, you know, you, you've, you've now truly incentivized your, your G2, your next generation advisor to grow the business because they're trying to pay off the first half or whatever slice you bought. But they're also making your second half either more valuable or at least you're you're still participating in profits along the way and and you know in kind of the truest sense that's how both people win on either side of the deal right right i think along the way you know karen and i both 
certainly benefited from it, but neither of us, I think, went into it with the idea of how do we how do we maximize profits? You know, as as the business grew, it was nice to have those profits there, but I think at the end of the day, we both looked at our salaries are what we live on. The profit is just extra money that you can throw into retirement. You can throw it back in the business and continue to reinvest in new people, new new technology, new overhead. And so I, th- I think that freedom on both of our ends allowed us to both take the risk, but also not get so hung up on the numbers that that becomes the reason why we couldn't make a succession plan work. And did you have to go out to a bank to borrow money to make all this work? Or did Karen kind of implicitly sell her finance it and, and just said she, she's taking the risk and you're paying her directly over five years? Yeah, Karen Karen just did 100% seller financed. My first no payment was not for a year after after purchase, which was extremely generous. But I, I think she knew at the forefront that I was very committed to this. So she wasn't quite looking at this as a, you know, I've got to get my down payment to make sure he's got some skin in the game. So yeah, so she seller financed, I paid her over five years. And then the end of five years would have been 2016. I was going to so say, so what happened when September. you got to the, the five-year window? Yeah, so about a year out, we started talking about, you know, what's the next step here? How are we doing this? And I think by that point, we had been sort of going back and forth between Karen's going to scale down slowly versus is she ready to fully retire? And by that point, she had been scaling back. So she had originally been at about 80% of full-time equivalents in 2010, 2011. And every year she was dropping back her time a little bit more and a little bit more. So that was both working less hours per week plus taking more vacation and by 2015, I think it was getting more and more clear that she was ready to retire. It definitely helped her make her decision when her husband, who also had his own company, he also decided to retire and identified his successor and, and brought him in. So that, I think, was sort of the the final piece that Karen needed to make her decision. And she decided, you know, okay, so 2016 is going to be my last year. And we had sort of decided up front that in order to be an owner, you had to also be working in the business. And therefore, if she was going to fully retire, then I would execute the remaining piece of my option. So instead of spreading that out where I would buy 10% a year for the next five years, I would go ahead and just buy the entire 50% on a new five-year note. And fortunately, the good news is because you'd powered forward growth in the meantime, the I would imagine the second 50% was mathematically easier to buy and finance than the first 50%. That's right. Yeah. So the, the second 50% was a no brainer. It was, you know, essentially I'm buying cash flow because, you know, my note payment is already going to be less than the profit that I'm acquiring through this purchase. So that one was a, a quite a bit easier to, of a decision to make. So in September, she she sort of fully stopped. We now call her an emeritus advisor because she still has her office. She comes by from time to time. I have an employee agreement with her where she does, on an hourly basis, do some work, mostly mentoring of other people in the office. She does a few projects here and there, but she's mostly retired now. And so, and so at this point, like you're, well, I guess, 
the note pays out over time, but like you've bought it, you're the full owner. Like this is, this is functionally your practice now. Right. So effective January one, I became sole owner. And all of this in your, well, you said you, you were fishing school in 2008. So you're, you're nine years out from school, early, early thirties and owning your advisory firm for the long run from here. Yep. 30 years old was the full purchase. 25 was the initial purchase. So very, very young. And again, you know, probably a little faster than what I would expect even internally with, with future staff. So, so as you look at it, like you've, I mean, you've seen a lot of the industry, you've seen a lot of succession plans that struggle as well. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what, what advice would you give to younger advisors looking at succession plans that maybe are not going as well as, uh, and as smoothly as, as yours did, like, do you have advice for others that have gone through it, at least what, what they need to be thinking from the, from the buyer's end and in looking at these deals? I mean, I think at the end of the day, it, it's what's not going well. Is this a problem of expectations are not aligned? And if, if that's the case, then, you know, you can't force a bad fit. So I think I looked out in the sense of the, the first firm I worked for was such a great fit that the succession plan worked. But if, if values aren't there or expectations just aren't lining up, it's never going to work. You can't force it. And so the, the sad truth of it is, you know, you just, just got to move on. You know, and we've had employees, we've had other advisors that have worked with us. And, it, you know, over time we figured out, hey, this isn't working out like we thought it was going to. You know, Karen had people before me that she worked with and it just, it wasn't a good fit. And so I think coming to that decision or coming to that realization and, and be, being willing to have the conversation of this, this just isn't meeting expectations. You know, sometimes you just have to have those hard conversations and move on. But I, I think the reality is, is a lot of the succession plans I see that aren't working, it's usually mo- not necessarily the expectations aren't aligned. It's just people aren't communicating. You know, you get so busy in the day-to-day, you know, it's get the, getting the next client. I've got this work. I've got emails. I've got to do this and that. You just got to set aside time and, and make it happen. If, you know, we put time on the calendar every single week to sit down and, and have the conversations that we needed to hammer out the details so like literally just while you were going through negotiating, you and Karen had a, a standing one hour meeting of just talk more about the deal, figure out more details. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a standing meeting, but it would be at each meeting we'd have a conversation and before we left, we would put on the calendar the next time we're talking and ideally it would be within the next week. And then usually what would happen is I would go, sort of type up a summary of what we discussed and what the what the decisions made were and then Karen we review it and make comments and then next time we'd sort of pick up and continue the conversation until eventually we had this sort of living document that we'd put together over time about all the decisions we were making and all the expectations and that helped us write both an operating agreement and put put together everything we needed in terms of a sales agreement and, a, and an installment note and so forth. How, how long did that take? So we, like I said, we stopped taking clients in January of 2011. And I think we signed everything in around June or July 
to be effective September 1st, 2011. So it was, it was, again, it was fast, but we put a lot of time aside to make sure it would happen. Interesting. So any other tips or thoughts for advisors coming in who maybe are, are struggling with this beyond the, you know, what I think truly is like great advice as a starting point, which is just if, if, if you can't find a values alignment, realistically, this, this isn't going to work, like trying to force it. You, you can't force a values change at that point and make sure you're taking the steps to communicate. You know, if, if the communication is not coming to you, bring the communication to the founder if you have to. So other, other, other thoughts, other ideas and comments? Well, I mean, I think the, the second point, and you sort of alluded to this earlier on, which is as a 20 something signing a, a note for a business that was well larger than my mortgage was a little scary. And so I think there was definitely this mental hurdle of you're making an investment, right? That this is all banked upon the, the fact that this business plan has to work out and the business has to grow. And, and that was a hurdle. But I also knew I was early in my career. I was young. I had lots of time to figure it out and was very confident in, in the partnership at that time. So I felt like it was a worthwhile risk to take to sort of make that not quite leap of faith because, you know, we were business, we had projections and we had estimates and so forth. But, but sometimes you just, you know, you got to take the risk to, to be a business owner. And if you're not willing to take those kinds of risks, then you're probably not cut out to own a business. So where do, where does the business go from here? You know, you're, you're said you're at 108 clients growing at 12 to 15 a year up to four staff members, like, I guess continuing to build with with the university staff and professors. Like, I mean, do you do you view yourselves as a niche for you working with U of I university staff members, and just you're all in on that niche, and you want to grow from here in that niche? How how do you view it going forward? Yeah, so I mean, I I always knew going in, I didn't want to be a solo entrepreneur. I, I figured I like having a team. I like having other people to, to count on and, and give advice and have back and forth. So it's always been my goal to build an ensemble, you know, something with multiple advisors, multiple partners. So that that's the reason why we're at where we're at today is because in order for me to be ready for Karen to retire, I wanted to have a team to work with me after that transition. So our next step is, you know, I've, I've got a team of employees, but I really want to f- now focus on getting that next person ready for partnership. What that means is not only do I have to get a partner, but I also need to have a team to support that person because in reality, most of the times, additional partners means another senior advisor on the team, which means they have a support staff of their own. So kind of where we're at today is I've, I've got, like I said, two other advisors. I'd, I'd say one of them, my advisor, Josh, is, you know, we're ready to start having our conversations about where do we take it from here. You know, we've, we've been so busy planning for Karen's exit and getting Josh into the lead role that now the next step is, okay, we need to start those conversations about what partnership looks like. And so 
I'd say probably in the next couple of months is really when we're going to start diving into those conversations. Like you mentioned, I have a new baby, so I've been a little bit focused on that the past couple of months, getting ready for and then going through that transition. But I'd say 2018, that's going to be our project is starting to have the conversation between Josh and I, but also sort of laying the foundations for what does it take to be a partner at Bluestem. So that means that we're probably looking at in the next 12 months, we're going to be hiring another advisor onto the team so that we have the capacity to keep growing, but also have people that can support as we move Josh up into a senior role. You have a CFP program there at University of Illinois in Champlain to, to hire from? Yeah. So one of, one of my advisors is from the University of Illinois, Emily, and then Josh came from another CFP program at a nearby university, Eastern Illinois University. So we haven't, we haven't quite nailed down when that hire is going to happen exactly. We're trying to decide, are we wanting to target early 2018 or are we going to wait until the summer? We'll make sure we've got a link out to Blue Stem in the, in the show notes as well. So if anyone's gearing up for graduation or a job change next year and wants to lurk your job opportunities, we'll, we'll make sure they can find their way over to you. Yeah, absolutely. We'll just put a little thing on our website. You can submit your email address. And then when we have the job posting ready, we can just shoot it out to anyone who might be interested. So what about just the the focus and the growth of the firm from here? Like is, you know, you, you mentioned a few times in your, your, you're in a university town, you've got a whole lot of university professor and administrator clients. Like, do you view this as your niche and you're going deeper in it? Or does it just happen to be where a bunch of your clients are now, but you'll grow in other directions from here? Like, how do you look at the, the growth of the firm going forward? Cause you know, you're, you're 30. Like you, you, you look at this with a really long time horizon over what you can build towards and what you want it to be. Yeah. I mean, so the university is, is something I definitely like to continue to expand upon just because we've got a natural knowledge base and it's not just the U of I, it, it's a profession that tends to be very transitory. So, you know, we've, we've worked with clients that have started at the U of I, but then branched out to all universities across the U S and even some international we plan on continuing to market that expertise and, and working with clients not only at the U of I, but nationwide. But I, I also imagine that as we grow and start to form additional diamond teams under the umbrella of Bluestem, that that would allow other partners to develop other interests and specializations that maybe they can grow within the umbrella of our organization. So I, you know, I don't really know what that looks like at this point. I think at some point in the future, I would definitely be interested in having the ability to serve clients in situations that right now we just, you know, we don't have the time and expertise to do. So that could be both kind of the XY model of servicing people who are brand new and, you know, and just starting their careers. It'd be nice to build in some sort of pro bono system to help those who are more needy, but don't have the resources to pay. But I could also see expanding into other sort of specializations as advisors have interest and in, in the talents to develop out. So as we wrap up, this is a show about financial advisor success. And, and one of the things that always comes up is that just success means different things to, to different people. And so you've had you know phenomenal start to the career and you're now sitting at, at 
30 and you're, you're owning your business with four employees and building from here with a great base and a long time horizon. And so I'm wondering how just, just for yourself, as you look forward, how do you define success? Wow. Yeah. I feel like I should have been prepared for this question. You know, I think looking back to when I first started on this, I would have defined success a lot differently than I, than I would today. And I think it's one of those things that evolves over time. You know, like I said, I have a new baby at home. And so I think my definition of success is probably going to continue to evolve as I start to get a better grasp as to what it means to be a, a father and have a family at home and so forth. I think right now, to me, success is not so much focused on the monetary side, but really just up to this point, success is, has been the joy and the, the fun of building something and knowing that it's it's impactful both to our clients, but also you know comparing ourselves against other firms and realizing that we're hitting benchmarks where a few years ago, you know, we were barely more than just this little lifestyle firm. Today we're we're an ensemble that people are interested in and asking questions about. So even just being invited to here to t- today to talk about the firm to me is sort of validation and recognition that we're doing things right. I think probably the next thing I need to do is for myself is figure out as we start to grow at this point, growth is not for the sake of more monetary reward. I mean, I'm already at a point where I'm pretty happy, but it's it's growing a, a firm of additional partners, both to share in, in that process, but also just having a, a team, you know, to kind of feel like I'm supported. And so I think I need to decide what do I want out of this? You know, do I want more monetary reward? Do I want more flexibility? Do I want more freedom? Am I just doing this for the the sheer intellectual fun of, of facing new challenges every day. But I think that's kind of where I'm at, right? Is I do this, I'm growing it because I want to see what I can do and I, it's fun to challenge and push myself. Well, very cool. I'm, I'm excited to see where you build it from here. I hope we can have you back on again at some point down the road to, to share how this <laughs> growth cycle has evolved and, and changed for you further over the next couple of years. Well, that, that sounds great. So thank you very much for having me on today, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.